Well, as Steve said, this is the last regular sermon in Matthew, let's put it that way. We will, Lord willing, do a kind of a recap. It's helpful when we're done with some things, you go back over and understand what the message is as a whole. But this morning, we, we focus on Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Well-known passage, familiar and yet, even, I hope, this morning as we come to it, you'll see some surprising things. If we were to back up, even as we begin to look at this passage, uh, we know that this principle is true. If you know your mission, that shapes your action. I mean, if you think about soldiers in the military, they're sent out on missions, they have a particular directive... But they're, not always, they're given parameters, perhaps, as to how they're to carry that out. But uh, there might be changes in the moment they need to make. Uh, well, do we do this or do we do that? What are they going to look back to? They're going to look back to their overarching mission. Well, it's the same with the church, and it's the same with Christians. How often do you reflect on what the church is supposed to do? What is the church supposed to do? Now, there's all things, sorts of things culturally that the church does, but what is it supposed to do? What does Jesus want it to do? What's its job? What's its function? If you answer that question, then you can answer the questions, what do we do on a Sunday morning when we gather? You can answer the question, what programs should we have? You can answer the question, where should we spend money? If you know your mission, then that determines your action. But it's not just as the church corporately, it's this too. What is your job as a Christian? There's a distinction there. There's, there's the individual life of a Christian, which is integrally tied to the life of the church, but there is, there's a both and there. What is your job as a Christian? Uh, if you're a Christian here this morning, that means that you claim that Jesus is your king. That means you claim that he's your Lord. That, claim, that means that you claim that he's your boss. That means that he has uh, say over your life. Uh, when you, if you say you're a Christian, that means you declare yourself a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, if you declare those things, if you claim those things, is, it, is, that, is that in theory? Is that in abstract? Or is it in reality? And if it's in reality, I think we would all say, yeah, I want that. That's true in reality. That's true of me as a Christian. The question is this, what should your life, your whole life, inside these walls and outside these walls, seven days a week, 24 hours, if Jesus is your king, he's not just king for you on Sunday, he's king for you out the whole week, what should your whole life be oriented around? What is Jesus' command to do with your life? Where should you spend your time and money? Let's be really real. Where are you going to spend your next dollar? What are you going to schedule for your calendar next week? If Jesus is your king, then he has say over all of your life. Well, this morning, as we come to this passage, well known, we get the directive. We get the directive for us as Christians individually and us as a church. And it's this, make disciples of Jesus because he is the king with all authority. Make disciples of Jesus because he is the king with all authority. Now, this passage, uh, and Steve alluded to it, um, this passage is directed to the 11. And sometimes people have taken this and said, oh, see, that's for the 11 apostles, it's not for me. 
But even as we enter this passage and even as we consider the 11, uh, what you have to recognize, even as has been kind of set up in Matthew, is the 11, formerly the 12, before Judas left, uh, the 11 are not just uh, any disciples, they are the prototypical disciples, meaning they are the representative disciples for the whole church. Not just the church that would form in their day and in their generation, but the church through the ages. The other metaphor that has begun in Matthew and will continue through the New Testament is that the apostles are the foundation layer of the church. You remember back to Matthew 16, uh, Jesus uh, said, um, after Peter made his confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Jesus said to Peter in particular, you're going to be uh, a stone, and on this rock, I will build my church. And he was going to build it on Peter, but by extension, he's going to build it around the rest of the apostles that were there. But these 11 function as found the foundational layer of the church and as representatives for the church through the ages. So even as we consider what is going on with the 11 here in this passage, we understand that there are implications for us today. So let's first see first part of this passage in verses 16 and the first part of verse 17. Let's look at the 11. And what we see in verses 16 through the first part of verse 17 is that the 11 respond submissively to Jesus' summons. The 11 responds submissively to Jesus' summons. Look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Now this reminds us of what we saw last week. You remember last week was the resurrection. Uh, The women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they're at the tomb. And they're met with an angel, and the angel says, uh, Jesus isn't here, he is risen, and go tell his brothers to go find him in Galilee, and they're going to see him there. And then what happens is those women, they're running, they believe, they believe the report, and they're going to tell the disciples, and Jesus himself meets them. And he effectively says the same thing. Uh, They worship him, they grasp hold of him. Uh, they approach him, they grasp hold of him, they worship him, they, they, they submit to him in reverence and awe, they, they believe he is king, they believe he is the cosmic Lord, he, they believe everything he has said, and he tells them the same thing though, go tell my brothers that they're going to go see me in Galilee. Now, we ended last week with the report of the guard and the lie that the, the guard, the Roman guard and the chief priest told, but now we pick up the thread of where we left the women. See, what the women were supposed to do is they're supposed to tell the 11, Jesus has been risen. He said that if you want to see him, you go to Galilee. We'll talk about why Galilee. But you go to Galilee and you're going to see him. Now, what do we find? What do we find? In verse 16, we find that the 11 disciples believe and obey. That's what the text says. The 11 disciples, they went to Galilee. Uh, This is not just belief of, I believe that Jesus was raised, and great, I'm going to stay in Jerusalem. This is proper belief, true biblical belief, which has action behind it. Uh, They take the, the journey, the journey, the long journey back up to Galilee. Remember, they're in Jerusalem in the south. They go back up to the north to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
Evidently, he had pointed out in some way or another and directed towards a specific mountain to which they're to be apart. And they get there and they see him. Verse 17, first part. When they saw him, they worshiped him. This is the same sort of word that was used with the women. Remember the women, they see Jesus. They approach Jesus. They grab hold of his feet in homage and they do him submission and reverence. We can imagine they're probably kissing his feet. They're worshiping him. They're, they're, they're showing their submission, their reverence to Jesus. And the disciples do the same thing. Now, what we find out um, is that there's still some distance from Jesus. You can, you can uh, see that briefly in verse 18. It says that Jesus came to them. Jesus approached them. It, with the women, the women approached Jesus... But with the disciples, they worship, but they don't approach. And that's actually going to be an important thing to keep note of. The disciples respond exactly how they're supposed to respond. They respond in belief. They respond in reverence and submission. They believe that Jesus, they, they're seeing the resurrected Christ. These are men who have spent three years with Jesus or more. They recognize him. Uh, they recognize that what he said about resurrection was true. They have obeyed him up to this point. They're doing exactly everything right. They're like, well, what about the whole but some doubted thing? We're going to talk about that in a minute. But everything up through the, ver um, the start of verse 17, the 11 are responding exactly how they're supposed to. Submissively, obediently, believingly, to Jesus' summons. He called them here to this place. Why did he call them to Galilee? Now, this is where understanding the whole scope of Matthew comes in, because uh, if you go back to chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but if you go back to chapter 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Jesus begins his ministry. After John is arrested, he retreats to Galilee, and the whole of the book of Matthew is focused on his ministry in Galilee in the north. And uh, what we see in chapter 4 is that what Jesus is doing in Galilee in the north fulfills the prophet Isaiah. Talks about how uh, Galilee of the nations is going to see a light. On them a light has dawned. And so what Jesus is doing in the far north, uh, which is where the, it's the uppermost part of Israel, it's where Israel meets the nations. It's where Israel meets the nations. There is a mingling between, even historically, between Israel and the nations at large. And so that's why it's called in, in Isaiah, and then Matthew calls it that again. It's Galilee of the nations. But if you wanted to go to the nations, you would go to the north more. Let's go to the nations, let's go to the north, or let's go to the east. But what Jesus does in his ministry and with his disciples in the book of Matthew, for most of it, they head south. They spend time in Galilee in the north, and we can even see the results of that ministry. Remember when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he's got a Galilean crowd around them, and they finally acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. And then there's this handoff to Jerusalem. Jerusalem asks uh, in chapter 21, hey, who is this? And uh, there's kind of this general answer, oh, this is the prophet Jesus. And then there's this question, well, how's Jerusalem in the south going to respond? 
And we've seen that. Jerusalem, as the epicenter of the nation, as the representative of the nation of Israel, has rejected its Messiah, has rejected Jesus as king. And now where does Jesus go? And where does he take his disciples? And where did he arrange even ahead of time, back in 2632, when Jesus says to his disciples, you're all going to fall away, but after I'm raised, meet me in Galilee. Jesus has already set up for this meeting. Why? Because when they're going back to Galilee, it's going to be a launching point again. But this time, as we find out in this text, it's going to be a launching point no longer for Israel, but for the nations at large. Galilee is where everything started. Galilee is the launching off point of ministry. Now, when we come to this text, you have to recognize these 11, they go there, they're obedient, they submit to Jesus' summons, And even as we kind of think about application for us from this text, here we've got 11, not just two anymore with the women, but we've got 11 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ who who recognized him, who had lived with him, and they recognize him as deserving and submission of reverence. This is no mass hallucination. Sometimes you hear that ridiculous claim that um, all the disciples, they wanted to see Jesus again so much they had a mass hallucination, the identical hallucination. No. That's ridiculous. No, here we see another eyewitness account, and they respond rightly. And so that should encourage our faith in the resurrected Christ. And it should encourage us to have the same response that the disciples do. See, the proper response to Jesus is not just merely acknowledging that he existed as a historical figure. It's not just a bare-bones acknowledgement that, yeah, I even believe the resurrection happened. You might even say with your lips that Jesus is God. That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is submission to Jesus, surrender to him as king, which is exactly what these 11 are doing in this passage. Now, there's still a problem And we're going to pick up on that problem in the last half of verse 17 all the way to the end of the passage. Now, you might say, well, why did you break the outline in such a weird part? I'll explain. But let's go ahead and move into that second part of this this passage in the latter part of verse 17 in through verse 20. And here we see this idea that Jesus restores and commands his disciples to make disciples. Jesus restores and commands his disciples to make disciples. Again, you're asking the question, well, what about the but some doubted? You said that uh, the disciples acted exactly how they were supposed to, with belief. They believed the women's reports. They acted. They went to Galilee, just as Jesus has said. Uh, they're uh, responding to him as the resurrected Christ directly. He's, he, they're, they, they're bowing to him in worship. But there's a problem. Now, your translation probably says, but some doubted. But there's dispute among scholars uh, exactly how to take this construction. Let's start off with the sum. Um, That word, really, it's actually just an article in Greek. If you want the technical details of what I'm about to tell you, you can come talk to me after. But let me give you the Reader's Digest version. The word that is translated sum can mean or be used as either they meaning the exact same 11 disciples. Or it can be used as some, which is what most English translations do, which is like a subset, some group, subset of the 11. Or it can be used as others, like there's more than the 11 there, and those others doubt it. 
So you see the difference. You can use it as they, they doubted, which would mean all of the 11 disciples doubted. You could use it as some, which is what most of our English translations do, which is some subset of the 11 are doubting. Or some, and more rarely, people argue that it's others. There's like 500 other people there, besides the 11 maybe, that are doubting. Now, um, when Matthew uses the construction that is used here, the word that is here translated some, it always refers back to the same group previously. So in other words, he talks, or in other places in Matthew, you can see a similar construction, and he talks about a plural group, and every time he uses the same construction that he's using here, he's always referring to the same exact group. So what that would mean for us then is that it would lend us to believe that all of the 11 disciples are doubting. All of the 11 disciples are doubting, and I think that is the case. But then that brings up another issue. Uh, this word that is translated doubting, it can mean doubt or it can mean hesitation. Now, usually how this is taken is it's attached directly to their worship. They worshiped, but some doubted, as if the contrast is with their worship. And it's usually taken as if there's some doubt about Jesus, like some doubt about his person, some doubt about his resurrection. But just, it just says they doubt it. It doesn't say what the object of their doubt is. Let me give you an example. This same word for doubt is used with Peter when he's walking on water towards Jesus back in chapter 14. Now, Peter gets out, if you remember, and he starts walking on water and he's looking at Jesus. But then he starts looking around him and he starts to sink. But he doesn't doubt Jesus. He doesn't have any doubt about Jesus, the person. You know, you know how I know that? Because he, 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 re, he calls out to Jesus and says, Lord, save me. So just because we've got this word doubt here in connection with worship doesn't mean the doubt is regarded to Jesus. Again, I say this word can mean doubt or hesitation. So let's, let's think about this. What would the 11 disciples most likely be doubting or hesitating? Probably not the identity of Jesus because they're obedient. They've obeyed the message of the women to go and see Jesus in Galilee. They're, they see him. They've already bowed their knee in worship. They're not doubting the person of Jesus. Why are they hesitating? Why are they doubting? Well, the last time that these 11 saw Jesus, at least as, as Matthew has framed the narrative, is when they abandoned him. When they fled in Gethsemane. Uh, the last time Peter, Peter who's of this 11, saw Jesus, he was denying Jesus. Now, you might think that would cause, even if you recognize, yeah, Jesus is the king, Jesus is resurrected, you can imagine you might still have some doubt and hesitation if you abandon Jesus or if you deny Jesus, don't you think? In fact, we, like I said, in verse 18, you notice, unlike the women, remember the women, when they see Jesus, they probably pause for a minute, but they approach Jesus and then bow down. Here in verse 18, notice what happens Jesus, it literally, it's the same word with the women, Jesus approaches them, which means what? They're still at some distance. Why? Because they're hesitant. They're hesitant. So if I was to, uh, what's, what's the summary of all of this? What am I saying? I'm saying I think there should be a period after worshiped, and I think the second part of verse 17 starts a new, second, is a new sentence. And after seeing him, they worshiped. 
Now they hesitated. And after approaching, Jesus said to them, that's amazing. Because here are these 11 who have either scattered to the winds in unbelief, they've fallen away, or uh, like Peter, they have denied Jesus. And so though they see him as the resurrected Christ, they are, uh, they're, they're hesitant to approach him, uh, approach him. They're at a distance. What does Jesus do? Jesus moves towards them. And not only does Jesus move towards them, he speaks to them. And not only does he speak to them, he gives them a commission, which is incredibly encouraging. Because Jesus just kind of bypasses the whole, uh, I, uh, I mean, it's embedded within what he's saying, but he doesn't talk about forgiving them. He doesn't talk about the issues of the past. He just says, guys, let's get to work. In other words, the people that had fled from him, that, were, uh, that had denied him, he now entrusts with the greatest commission ever. That is hugely encouraging. Because maybe, maybe, um, maybe you and I, uh, let's, let's use another scenario just to kind of illustrate this. Maybe, um, maybe you, I gave you a job to do. Maybe you're helping me with something at the church, and you just totally don't do it. And you go uh, waste your time. You don't actually do the job I told you to do. And then maybe later you realize your error and come back, but you're hesitant. I might say, I forgive you, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to give you the same job to do again, is it? But here, what does Jesus do? Jesus gives him the biggest job imaginable. Jesus shows grace and mercy to them and approaches them and speaks with them and gives them a job as his followers, as his disciples. So we see the mercy, the care of Jesus. Now, what does he tell them to do? The way this is, text is structured, there is first Jesus' declaration of his own authority. Then there's the mission itself, which is kind of verse 19, first part of verse 20. And then there's a promise to, to encourage the disciples as they, they live out this mission. So let's first start with the authority. Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and upon the earth was given to me. Was given to me. Now let's pause here for a second. Does Jesus, what is Jesus saying? Well, he's definitely saying that he has authority in the heavenly realms and he has authority on earth. But what's kind of gives us pause a little bit is to, and scratches our heads, is this new or has Jesus already had this? If we were to go back in Matthew, we would see that Jesus has great claims to authority. If we were to go back to Matthew 9, uh, um, we would see him uh, healing a paralytic, and he would say, um, son, your sins are forgiven. And there's a note uh, by Jesus that says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, he explicitly says his authority is on earth to forgive sins, but to forgive sins at all is a heavenly sort of authority. Or you could fast forward to Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, um, where Jesus talks um, to his father, 
And then he talks to the crowds around him, and he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And that's one of those special texts back in Matthew 11, say, starting in 25, and 27 is the, verses, the verse that I just highlighted, um, where we see kind of the inner Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son. That the Son recognizes that all things have been handed over to him by the Father. And we could even look at more texts, but I would argue that the authority that Jesus claims here at the start of verse, or in verse 18 is an authority he's already had, and he's had for all eternity. So what's new? Why does he bring it up again with his disciples? Well, Jesus, and what he has done in his ministry and how he's t- talked to his disciples, he has um, made clear he is the Messiah, but he's also the God-man. He's the divine son of man. But the crucifixion and called that into question, didn't it? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Because he's been nailed to the cross as a common criminal, as a rebel. But now Jesus has been raised from the dead. What did the crucifixion and resurrection do? It vindicated the authority that Jesus already had. The Father has given the Son authority in heaven and on earth from all eternity. And Jesus references that now with his 11 disciples because he's saying, I own it all. And that's going to be the basis for the commission he gives them. Uh, Jesus owns it all. He owns the heavens and what's in the heavens. He owns the earth and what's in the earth. He owns you. Whether you submit to him or not, he owns you. And he has right to declare over you. what uh, he, He has right to command your submission. He has right over you totally. But in this context, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I have this authority, you 11, my disciples, my followers who are following me, who have submitted to me, to back their mission. We would call it like this. This is authorization. You know, if you think about how authority works, um, you usually, especially for important tasks, you can't just do, do stuff randomly. Like, you have to have authorization to do something. Well, by Jesus saying, I own it all, I have all authority, now he is authorizing the disciples to do what he commands them to do which brings us into the mission itself. Therefore, based on my authority that I have over everything, therefore, going, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all things as many as I have commanded you. There is one main command, Make disciples of all nations. There is what is known as a participle. You don't need to remember that, but it is something that comes before. Going. Uh, You might have it translated as go, and that's fine, but it comes before the command. And then you've got two participles after the main command, baptizing and teaching. The way Greek works, the participle that comes before is a frame of reference. In other words, uh, let me give you a frame of reference for this command I'm about to give you. Make disciples of all the nations. 
Well, that's different than anything the disciples have done thus far. Go back to chapter 10 really, really quickly. They have done mission before. The disciples have had a mission before. They've had a commission. They had it back in chapter 10. Let's see this starting in chapter 10. Um, let's read verse 1, and then I'll skip down to verse 5 and 6. Right before this, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Um, and he's been kind of training up his 12, and then he sends them out. Verse, chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Similar, isn't it? Over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every infliction. And then he lists the 12. And then in verse 5, we see this. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, the nations, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has drawn near. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. They've had a similar mission in the past, but the difference was they were restricted. They were restricted to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So when we go back to Matthew 28, Jesus gives them a frame of reference. He's now saying, make disciples of all the nations. And he prefaces that by this idea, as a frame of reference, you're going to have to go. Like if you're going to reach all the nations, like all the nations, you're going to have to go. You're no longer within the boundaries of Israel. You're going to have to go north and east and west and south. You're going to have to go in order to actually fulfill this command. That's just a frame of reference for the main command. Of make disciples of all the nations. Now, what does that mean? This is like where we attack our kind of Christianese, right? We, we kind of say, oh yeah, make disciples. What does that mean? What does that mean to make disciples? What does that mean to make disciples of all the nations? Well, here again, we have only to look at what Jesus and the disciples have already done in the book of Matthew. You see, the language of calling someone to discipleship is the language of come, follow, follow me, when Jesus is saying it. Because what a disciple is, is a follower and a learner of Jesus. We could kind of use an approximation in our day, apprenticeship, where you are emulating a master, you're learning from a master, and you're, you're, you're devoted to that master. That's how it was used in that time. We can see how Jesus himself has made the call of discipleship and what he's expecting the disciples to do. Go back to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. This is Jesus making disciples right here. This is the, the call of discipleship. Not the only one, but one of them. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I, am a gentle, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you want rest for your soul, you come to me. And if you come to me, that means you're going to learn from me. The, the imagery of yoke was a common one to talk about um, to being instructed, actually being given commands by the law. 
Jesus has a law. He has directives. So if you're going to follow Jesus, he's going to give you rest for your soul. But it's a whole lifestyle uh, of uh, what it ex he expects for a follower of Jesus. We can see this even more explicitly in chapter 16. Right after Peter has made confession of Jesus to be the Christ, um, Peter, uh, Jesus shortly after rebukes Peter for setting his mind on the things of man rather than the things of God. And then he says this in Matthew 16, 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. You repudiate yourself, meaning what? You repudiate living for yourself. And take up his cross. You embrace the most shameful death that the world could offer. And you follow me. Why? Why would you do this? For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." This ties in with the repeated call throughout the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. We see them meshed in this passage in Matthew 16. Jesus is the king over all. Jesus drew, uh, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of the heavens drew near when Jesus drew near. The king came. And the king gave foretaste of the kingdom through miracles and through healings and through dying for his people and saving them from their sin. But Jesus didn't establish his kingdom when he came the first time. He saved kingdom citizens, but the kingdom came near, but it wasn't established. But Jesus will establish his kingdom when he comes again in the glory of his father as a judge to judge those who, are, uh, to, those who are following him, they will inherit the kingdom. To those who are not, those who are disciples will inherit the kingdom. Those who are not will not inherit the kingdom. They will endure the wrath of God in fiery judgment for all eternity. Those are the only two options. And so the call is, the, it's good news, it's gospel to say that Jesus is king. In the scope of the universe, in the way that God defines good, it is good that Jesus is king. But it's only good news for you if you repent. Which means that you surrender, that you deny yourself, that you're done living for yourself, you're done ruling your own life, and you surrender in repentance and faith to Jesus, the king who died to purchase you back from your sins, died to purchase you from his own judgment. And it also means that you're not saying, thanks Jesus, bye, I am following him. He is my Lord. He demands my whole life, and it's surrendered to him. Nothing can stay the same. That is the call of discipleship. Unless you think, sometimes this is said, that oh, a disciple is like Christian plus, like that you're a, special, you're a super Christian if you're a disciple. No. The New Testament uses the language of Christian and disciple interchangeably. So you're either a disciple or you're not. You're either a Christian or you're not. They're one and the same thing. Jesus either rules your life or he doesn't. If he does not rule your life, he will be your judge on the day of wrath. 
And what is Jesus calling his current disciples to do? Make disciples of all the nations. Sometimes we hesitate to think, well, you know, I don't want to, you know, be a burden. I don't want to interfere with people's lives. I don't want to speak something that's going to be offensive to people. Jesus' message is inherently offensive. And he has authorized, you have the right to offend people with the message of the gospel and the message of the kingdom because Jesus owns everything and he gave authorization to do so here. Now, becoming a disciple entails two things. This is where we get the two participles that come after the main verb. The way this works in Greek, if there's two participles that come after, they elaborate on the main command. The main command is to make disciples of all nations. If you're going to be a disciple, first, that entails, well, here we, the command is given to the disciples. They're to make disciples. As they make disciples, what are they supposed to do as part of keeping the command? First, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the only... The only time that baptism is really portrayed in the gospel of Matthew, at least kind of defined, is back in chapter 3 with the baptism of John. And the baptism of John was uh, a baptism uh, where John's calling people to repentance. And it says that people were baptized confessing their sins. Why is that? Because this imagery with being immersed in water is the idea that you are going to, you need cleansing, well, that's why it goes along with confession of sin and repentance. You need cleansing from your sin. God is coming in judgment. You need cleansing from your sin. And so you go to the waters of judgment and salvation. This is how uh, immersion works throughout the whole Bible. They're waters of judgment for some and salvation for others. And you are saying, I need to be cleansed. I need washed. And I need God to save me. And we also said back in Matthew 3 that this imagery of immersion is throughout the whole scriptures. The, the creation, the original creation, everything was watery. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks when we start Genesis. Everything's covered with water. Out of that comes a new creation and a priestly people. Then God floods the world again. He immerses it. And then out of that comes a new creation and a new priestly people. The people of Israel, they go through the Exodus, they go through the waters of the Red Sea, and then they come out a priestly new creation people. And on and on and on, we come to Jesus. Jesus is baptized, and he is identified as the new covenant priestly king. So on the one hand, becoming a disciple, you have to acknowledge, I need cleansing, I need washing. And Jesus has given the public means of displaying repentance through the waters of baptism. Jesus wants public disciples. Christianity, religion, is not a private thing. It is a public thing. And Jesus wants his disciples to go public, and the means he has done that is through the waters of baptism. It's not only that you're being a picture of you being cleansed through what Jesus has done on the cross. Notice here, it is literally baptizing them into the name, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you're not only uh, identifying and through the waters that you're dying to your old self and being brought up, you are also the name of the triune God is being put on you. You are being identified with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are publicly identifying with Jesus and you are publicly, the, the, the triune God is publicly saying, yeah, this one's mine. 
this one's mine. Baptism is not optional. It is a command for a disciple of Jesus. You can see that here, right? Jesus is talking to disciples, current disciples. Those disciples are to make disciples. That's a command. How do you fulfill that command? One of the things is by being baptized. Now flip it around. If you want to become a disciple of Jesus, you've got to surrender. You've got to repent. And Jesus says, uh, you need to have some current disciples make you a disciple and baptize you. And if you don't, you're walking in disobedience to Jesus Christ, the King. That's the first thing. That's initiation. That's where you are publicly joining. You're publicly showing your allegiance to Jesus. You're publicly being identified with the family of God. Publicly identified with the triune God. Publicly being brought into the church. Back in Matthew 18, 20, Jesus describes his church as those who are gathered into my name. Right now, as we are gathered, Jesus' name is over this gathering. This is where Jesus, Jesus is happy to own this gathering. He's putting his name over it. And so when one is baptized and going public with their faith, the church does that to say, yeah, by all that we can see, that one's a disciple of Jesus. We identify him and we're partnering with them. We're partnering with him in this mission to make disciples. But it doesn't just stop there. You make disciples. How do you do that? In an initial way, baptism is part of the conversion process. So baptizing them. And then what? Teaching them. Not just teaching them like abstract truth, but notice what Jesus says here. Teaching them to keep all things, as many as I have commanded you. So this isn't just, hey, isn't it nice that Jesus said this stuff? It is no, Jesus expects you to obey because he's the king. Now, you might ask the question, well, what stuff? All things as many as I've commanded you, you the original apostles. Well, Matthew, as one of those 11, has given us a summary in five teaching sections of Jesus in his gospel about things that Jesus taught his disciples. Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is instructing his disciples. Here's how you live as a Christian. Here's what kingdom righteousness looks like. Uh, Matthew 10 uh, is in the next discourse. This is what mission is going to look like as you go out. Here's how you think about it, and here's what you do. Matthew 13, uh, okay, now that Jesus has been rejected, he's not bringing the kingdom now, what do we expect kind of through these parables leading up to the end? Matthew 18, how do you function as the new covenant disciples of Jesus? Matthew 24 and 25, how do you, what do you look for as you look for Jesus coming back at the end? You see it? Those are not everything that Jesus absolutely said to his disciples. Obviously, we have the rest of the New Testament, but it is those teaching sections in Matthew that are a basis for instructing a new disciple and an ongoing disciple. That's how instruction happens. It's not just when someone is saved, although there is instruction that needs to happen when someone submits to Jesus. It is an ongoing process. You're never done learning as a disciple of Jesus. You're learning how to know your Lord and master more. You're no learning how to obey him and to follow him in obedience. That's the mission. Make disciples. How do you do it? Well, two entailments of, uh, of the command are baptizing and teaching to keep. Now, that's a big job. 
Notice what Jesus says, make disciples of all the nations, all the people groups of the world, because he already owns them. And Jesus is saying, I want them to mine. I want, I want uh, the subjects I have saved from all the nations. You guys need to go out and find them through rep- proclaiming the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has, has drawn near. You need to baptize them. You need to teach them to keep what I've told you. That's a big job. So, Jesus gives assurance and promise as the last thing he says, at least as Matthew records it, in the, to his disciples. And behold, I am with you all the days until the completion of the age. Now, that phrase, the completion of the age, Jesus used that. Jesus used that in, in Matthew 24 and 25 to talk about when he's coming back. So he sets the terminus, he sets the end point. This mission is going to happen until the end of the age, till the close of the age. In fact, he says in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all the nations. See the similar language? And then the end will come. But notice what he says here. He says, I'm going to be with you. Now you might say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Jesus isn't here. Jesus ascended uh, to heaven at the right hand of the Father. That's true. But this phrase, I will be with you, is often used in Scripture to talk about how God is backing the, uh, a mission that he gives his people. He's not, in other words, he's not just saying, okay, there's the mission, have fun, try your best, see ya, I'll check in later. No, this language indicates that God is backing the mission. Jesus, the God-man, is backing the mission, which is in, incredibly encouraging. Because this is a big job. This is a daunting job. But what's encouraging is not only that you are authorized, you were authorized by the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, but you, that, that one is backing it all the way. Every day. Really clear. Every single day. Until the close of the age. Until Jesus comes back. And that is intensely encouraging. You can already see in that ending phrase, Jesus is not expecting his 11 to do all of this all at once. Remember, who are the 11? They are the foundational layer of the church. They are the prototypical disciples. And Jesus is anticipating generations of disciples. This is a self-replicating command. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Well, one of the commands is going to be this command, to make disciples. And every day, every single day, there hasn't been a day since Jesus ascended into heaven that he has not been with his church and with his people, backing the mission. And that gives encouragement to complete it. Now, as we apply this, first, see Jesus' mercy in approaching and restoring his hesitating disciples. You see that? That here are these people that have blown it, denied Jesus, fled. 
and may, and he 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 accepts them back. And not only that, he accepts them back in the fullest form he could to give them a new job. So you see Jesus' mercy in him approaching. He makes the move towards them and restoring them. You might see your sin, because that's part of, if you're coming to Christ, you've got to see your sin. If you don't think you're a sinner, you're not going to love Christ as a Savior. But when you see your sin, and you see it truly as it is, and that doesn't just happen once at the beginning of your Christian walk, that happens over and over again because we still are sinners, and we see our sin, and we see how gross it is. In fact, it gets worse, because we see, ah, I see who I'm supposed to be, and yet I see who I still am, and we can get into a rabbit hole of, well, I've got to clean myself up. I've got to make myself acceptable to Jesus, or we start wondering, is Jesus going to accept me? I've sinned. I'm kind of on the outs with Jesus. Will he accept me back? Well, you've got to look at Jesus' character in this passage, and it's like, yeah, because look at how these guys blew it, and yet look at Jesus' character in receiving back. So see that first. Next, we've already said this, but Jesus is the cosmic king having all authority. Do you rank Jesus as the highest authority with no exceptions? And is that a theoretical statement? We can make statements like that as Christians, like, yeah, Jesus is my king. Jesus is the king over all. And it's just all theoretical. It's all abstract. It's all out there. But if it's not having a play on your everyday life, if it's not changing you, then it's just words. Are you yielding to Jesus' authority? And if you're not, then the thing that you are not, then the other, what is the other thing that you're yielding to? What authority, whether it's yourself or something else, are you tempted to put above Jesus? How are you participating in the mission of making disciples? This is your job. Now, when I say your, I'm going to use your in two ways. I want to use your in the way that I could point to each one of you who is a disciple of Jesus in this room and say, it's your job. It's your job individually to make disciples. That's what your king commands. That's your, that's your life. If you follow Jesus and you're a subject of Jesus and that's your fundamental identity, then this is the fundamental job that your king gives you. So pointing to you individually. But it's also your job. Namely, Faith Bible Church's job. The church's job. See, this is, there's this reality in the Christian life of the individual and the corporate we're not just all out there individually saying, I'm making disciples. It's a joint effort with the rest of the church. It's the job that our King Jesus has given us. How are you participating in the mission of making disciples? What does that look like? It means that you're engaging people and you're proclaiming that Jesus is King. You're proclaiming the nature of his kingdom. You're proclaiming the nature of judgment. You're calling for repentance and self-denial and faith in following Jesus, just like Matthew talks about. What's the scope of your mission? Your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your family, your classmates. And for some of you, going. Going to the nations in a more frontier sort of way. Like the Turners in Albania or the Browns in the Philippines or Cali in Indonesia. It's a both and. And as you are making disciples, you're presenting the gospel and are you calling for response? Are you calling for baptism? In your gospel presentation, do you call for baptism? 
That's what Peter called for. Peter was under the influence of the Holy Spirit a few, uh, a few weeks later, under the day of Pentecost. Peter, it says he's, he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the crowd, he, they hear the sermon, they hear the gospel presentation, and the crowd says, brothers, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Go public with your faith. Make sure that baptism as a public mark of becoming a disciple of Jesus, as a public mark of being under the ownership of the triune God, of being brought into the life of the church is part of your gospel presentation. And then it doesn't just stop there. Are you instructing disciples to do what Jesus commanded? That's not just my job. That's not just um, the elder's job. That's not just the deacon's job. That's all of our job to know one another, to love one another, to know what's going on in each other's lives so we can apply the truth of Jesus so that we can do what Jesus has commanded us to do. Those of you who are here this morning, you're not following Jesus. The call is very clear. I, I don't think I can make it plainer. Jesus is your king, whether you recognize him as such or not. Jesus is coming again for judgment, and if you do not surrender to him, you will face him as your judge, and you will face eternal wrath, justice at his hand. But the king has died for his people, such that if you deny yourself, you repent, you trust Jesus, you swear allegiance to Jesus, you follow Jesus, he will accept you and receive you. So I'll call on you today if you have not done that. And if you don't know how to do that, come talk to me. Come talk to the friend who's near you, who knows the gospel. But you need to do it today. Jesus is not asking. He's commanding you as your king. And take comfort, those who are in Christ here this morning, that though this is daunting, it feels impossible, Jesus is backing the mission with his presence, with his intervention, with you individually and with us corporately each and every day. The authority of Jesus and his presence give you courage in making disciples. Let's pray. Father, what shall we say? We thank you for the good news of Jesus, and yet it is a costly call. Lord, we ask your forgiveness, both individually and collectively, where we have failed in the mission, where we have put it off, where we have been cowardly. Um, and Lord, we, we, we approach you hesitantly like those disciples, and yet you show mercy and grace and you recommission us. We thank you. Lord, we pray for grace as individuals of this church and as a corporate body that this mission that you give us would dominate our lives and our actions, would shape what we do, where we put our effort and energy, where we put our money and our time, where when we take risks and when we don't. And Lord Jesus, because we love you as our king and we're submitted to you as our king. Lord, I pray for any who are here stubbornly not willing to surrender, still want to rule their own lives and call their own shots. I pray that you would break them in mercy 
Break them by your love. Bring them to repentance and faith. Lord, help us to be faithful as a church, carrying out your command, baptizing those who are going public with their faith, adding members to your church, teaching to, keep, to do what you've commanded. And even when it is unpopular, even when it stands against what our world is saying, Lord, to, to teach it nonetheless, because you are the greatest authority. There is none higher. Help us to carry out the mission. Thank you how you preserved this church for 120 years. And Lord, we, we would all acknowledge, looking back at the history of our church, we haven't always been faithful. But Lord, you've kept us here and you've commissioned us. Help us to be faithful. Give us more years and help us to use those years wisely for the sake of your name, the honor of Christ. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.